1: You tell the stories of what they're going through and the terrible injustices that exist under, under the effects of autocracy and authoritarianism. It, it can, like, those stories cannot uh, coexist with a just society, and it calls, it beckons to us. It requires that we address it. It requires that we fix it, and it requires all thinking people, educated people, caring people, to to talk about how they, it is that they could improve that situation, whether that's in Russia or in Taiwan or in any other place in the world where where people are not able to be the champions of their own destiny and make their own decisions. So my hope is that we'll start here in Ukraine, and by this time next year, we'll have an office open in, in Taiwan, and we'll tell stories from that perspective, too. That's, that's my goal.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, May 30th, 2023, Tim Mack was an NPR reporter in Kiev since the beginning of the full-scale invasion last year. He recently stepped down and started his own Substack from the Ukrainian capital. It's called the Counter Offensive. And he joined me from Kiev in the Virtual Jungle studio to talk about it. What makes a reporter leave an established news organization like NPR to start a startup in a war zone? What is the counteroffensive going to cover? How will it be different from other stuff you might be reading on the Ukraine war? And what are things like in Kiev these days as the Ukrainians get ready for the counteroffensive for which publication is named it's the lawfare podcast may 30th tim mack on the counteroffensive. so tim let's start with uh where you are every morning for the last uh year and a half you have begun the morning with a tweet that's saying kiev is still under ukrainian control tell us about your surroundings
1: well so i've Recently started a new publication called the Counteroffensive, and we just hit one month of age, and so we moved in, uh, kind of by coincidence, um, into a new apartment in Central Kiev, just today. So uh, I'm in an apartment we just uh, moved into. We've been carrying boxes, moving things around, and I'm looking out on the a, a beautiful city and the the sun is setting.
0: Before we we're gonna we're gonna get to the counteroffensive both the military one and the publication one in a moment. But uh, give us a sense of Kyiv today. You know, a number of months ago, it was very much immediately under siege and and under bombardment even long after the Russian troops withdrew from the suburbs. What is Kyiv like today?
1: It's really bizarre, right? Because it's constantly under attack. Uh, overnight, for example, there were there's a barrage of Shaheed drones that came flying in and were shot down. Um, there have been 12 air raids just in this month alone. So it's a pretty frequent thing. But then the flip side of it is that people just want to keep living their lives. And so I just returned from dinner. I uh, was out on the street, and, and I'm watching kids hanging out in the city center. I'm, I'm watching people going out and sitting outside at bars. It's a beautiful spring evening here. It's hard to square those two things, right? That, that hey, there's death and destruction all around, but there's also a real push by people. I'm just amazed about how, uh, by how adaptable people are that even while there's this conflict underway, they're refusing to let it get in the way of, of fun. I mean, that, that, here's the thing about it, right? Like there's this, there's this facade of, of normal life, but I can, he- I can also feel and sense and hear from friends and sources that the war grinding on for as long as it has is taking a real toll on people's sanity. And how could it not? you you really can't get a full night's sleep because there are explosions from uh, anti-drone rockets flying in the middle of the night. Um, There are are, are these big thumps that shake the room and set off car alarms and you feel it in your chest. It's hard to imagine that prolonged exposure to that kind of daily living doesn't have a long-term mental health effect. So I'm
0: curious when you... Describe, uh, the explosions that you hear, the dull thumps that sh- shake the room. What percentage of those are artillery or drone actually hitting targets? And how much of them are the anti aircraft and anti missile systems that the Ukrainians have deployed taking out stuff that is incoming?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the anti Aircraft, air defense missiles, uh, anti drone missiles have been super effective from what I can tell. I mean, central Kyiv remains largely untouched by the damage of this war for that reason. When I hear, and you don't just hear the explosions, you'll see the rockets get launched and there's a streak of light across the sky as it goes to try to meet the missile or drone or whatever it's targeting. For example, last evening there were from what I understand, dozens of drones inbound for Kyiv, and the Ukrainian government, which is not always accurate in its assessment of its, its immediate assessment of how effective air defense has been, the Ukrainian government has said that all of the drones that were inbound for Kyiv were shot down. And you know, even though there's often reason to be skeptical of governmental sources, if there were, if there was damage. It always gets out through this whisper network, this social media network that exists in Ukraine. So I see, I see no reason to doubt it. All that is to say that air defense has been really very effective, and many of the banks we're hearing is actually preventing death and destruction below.
0: And does that affect the the sense of fear and anxiety that the explosions create? I mean, I I, I haven't spent time in 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 Kiev, but I have spent time in Israel uh, where, you know, the sort of the bangs of Iron Dome taking out incoming missiles are sort of strangely not that scary. And they're, you know, they're you would feel worse if you saw a streak and didn't hear it than when you do. And I'm curious whether there's something also weirdly reassuring about those thuds, knowing what so many of them are?
1: Well, you know, it, it's hard. You do develop an ear over time for, for example, if you're in the East, closer to where the fighting is, what's incoming versus what's outgoing, right? You do get a sense of what, well, that really sounded like, a, 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 like an impact versus that sounded more like the thump, thump, thump of, uh, of air defense working. Um, But what I want to emphasize, though, is that it's not, you know, the stress is not an acute event. It's not one night. It's 12 nights this month. It's a year and change. It's the accumulation of anger and sadness that a lot of Ukrainians have felt over this period of time. And it's adding up. So, you know, you know, I watched today a video of Ukrainians cheering on an air defense missile going up into the sky last night and taking out what was probably a, an incoming drone that 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 was was aiming for some sort of target in Kyiv and everyone was or the person who was taking the video was cheering um, and no doubt it, it was probably a fun thing and like an enjoyable thing to see but what i think it, that video doesn't show is the accumulation of stress and worry and pain that exists in a war zone that accumulates over time
0: yeah. Um, so let's talk about you in connection with that war zone. A lot of people uh, who maybe don't know your name uh, are scratching their heads right now as they're listening to this and saying, I know that voice. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> the reason they know that voice is, of course, that you have been National Public Radio's voice in Kiev for since uh, the beginning of the full-scale invasion, Uh, and now you have gone off on your own. So give us a little bit of the story of how you went from uh, NPR's voice in Kiev to the publisher and author and editor and proprietor of the counteroffensive.
1: Well, just a very, very small correction, Ben, there. I was one of NPR's voices in in Ukraine over the course of the full scale invasion starting in February of last year, but I wasn't the only one. And I I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to give that misimpression that there have been a lot of really talented NPR reporters in in the country covering the story and doing really, really great work. Um, But, but uh, after, after mentioning that, I mean, uh, I think the real, the fact of it is that about a month ago, maybe a month and a half now um, NPR had these, this big round of layoffs and and laid off about 10% of the workforce, a hundred people. And while I was not, I was not targeted in those layoffs. I did decide to, I did did decide to leave the organization at that time um, and swap out for a, for a colleague of mine who I I thought was a really very talented person. And so that person got, uh, that person got rehired and I, and I left the company. And what I was thinking at the time was with very little money, NPR probably wasn't going to be able to send me back to Ukraine. And I really wanted to try to build my own thing and, and uh, start a new publication based on investigations and human narrative reporting, really immersive stuff to put you on the ground, let you hear what it's like to be in Kiev during one of these raids, let you feel what it's like to be in um, a, an Odessa jazz club. Uh, when the air raid sirens are going off or um, or someplace closer to the front lines embedding with Ukrainian troops. The goal of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to do a different kind of reporting. So let me give you an example. Uh, earlier this week, when there were these dozens of blasts in Kyiv, and they woke the entire city up at three o'clock in the morning, I didn't write a simple uh, or straightforward uh, associated press style story that said, okay, at three o'clock in the morning, Dozens of explosions uh, rocked the capital city of Kiev in the latest series of attacks. What we do at the counteroffensive, which is on Substack, uh, what we do with the counteroffensive is we put the news in narrative form. So we went to the Kiev Zoo and we went to one of the places where shrapnel had come flying in. That was at the Kiev Zoo. It was slashing through a tree, and we we put the news out. Through the perspective of a sketch artist who was working just feet away from where the, that that shrapnel fell and could have hurt or killed either humans or animals, we talked to him about his experience of the blast of those evening. Of that evening, we talked to him about what it's like to be a sketch artist in the war. And he's quite ashamed of it actually, because he had had higher education and really doing sketch art work, uh, you know, at the zoo was what little he could do to make a living during a very difficult time for artists. And as we read the story, you happen just kind of by coincidence to learn the news of the day. You know, uh, I'm trying to do a sort of more empathetic style of journalism where we look at the news through the eyes of people who are experiencing it.
0: You keep using the word we to describe the counteroffensive. And I'm curious to what extent that is a royal we and to what extent there is an organization or a real plural here. Who is the counteroffensive other than
1: you? Okay. Well, firstly, uh, I grew up in Canada. So as a Canadian American, as emphasis on Canadian, I, I'm just, uh, I think I'm genetically unable to use the word I. <laughs> but uh uh and so and i've been used to it, i've worked you know over the last 15 years at a very a variety of news organizations and it's always a team effort so i, I i'm very used to saying we and in this case it is it, it is a team effort right so i while i can brag that i've taken all of 19 ukrainian tutoring lessons um i am not yet fluent in ukrainian and russian i'm trying not there yet um and so my my partner. Uh, is a guy named Ross Pelek. He is, uh, he's been someone I've been working with for a long time. And he's a brilliant guy who decided to move from Ukraine just a few years ago to London, not speaking any English, and just taught himself English. And he's a brilliant, very calm partner who, who seems to get more calm the more stressful the situation is, which is exactly the kind of person you want to be hanging out with in a war zone. Um, so there's us... We've got a fellow in Washington D.C. We have a copy editor in London, and and you know one of our goals is to try to train Ukrainians. So I'm I'm hiring. I'm trying to I'm trying to hire young Ukrainians, teach them how to do feature narrative investigative journalism, and have them you know uh, start to uh, tell their stories. Like one of the big reasons we're doing this kind of narrative style journalism is because of the issue of Ukraine fatigue, right? Like a lot of people just don't want to hear. About just what's happening on the front lines, or or oh the uh, this unit moved from this town to that town, or that town got or that village got bombarded. I want to encourage both our writers and and, and uh, our publication be one to push out compelling human stories that would be interesting no matter where they took place. That you, Ben, or anyone else who's listening would want to read about the stories because they're interesting human stories. They 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 involve you know, human emotions of, uh, of uh, for example, betrayal or anger, uh, irritation, exhaustion, um, you know, like that. We're, we're telling those kinds of stories. That's, that's what we're trying to do. And, and what I, I'm hoping to do is hire Ukrainian reporters, teach them how to do that to combat uh, Ukraine fatigue in the West, to combat apathy, to combat cynicism about this war, to combat ignorance about this war. That's what we're trying to do with all of this, and, and that's the kind of team I'm trying to build.
0: So talk about the title, The Counteroffensive. It's super topical today because everybody's sitting there waiting for the counteroffensive. But it's uh, going to look good six months from now. What's the what's the theory behind the title? I have
1: thought about this, Ben, if you can believe it. I have thought about this, and I'm glad <laughs> you asked me. Well, look, it, it, it's a counter—it's a counteroffensive, not just. I mean, it's named after obviously what we expect to be a counteroffensive and uh, what may be a decisive moment in this war. But it's not just named after the counteroffensive. We'll do many, many things that may not have to do with the military at all or any you know, military campaigns or whatever. It, it's a—it's a counteroffensive against the things that I um, was mentioning earlier. It's a counteroffensive against ignorance about the war it's a counteroffensive against apathy about the war and it's a counteroffensive against the rising tide of authoritarianism in eastern europe and in asia my thought on this my thinking on what we're doing as a journalist outfit to be, journalism outfit to begin with is that autocracy and empathy just can't coexist that that when you tell the stories of individual people and you tell the stories of what they're going through and the terrible injustices that exist under under the effects of autocracy and authoritarianism. It, it can like those stories cannot uh, coexist with a just society, and 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 it calls, it beckons to us. It requires that we address it. It requires that we fix it, and it requires all thinking people, educated people, caring people to to talk about how they, it is that they could improve. That situation, whether that's in, you know, in Russia, or in Taiwan, or in any other place in the world where, where people are not able to be the champions of their own destiny and make their own decisions. So my hope is that we'll start here in Ukraine. And by this time next year, we'll have an office open in, in Taiwan. And we'll tell stories from that perspective, too. That's, that's my goal.
0: Wow. So counteroffensive here is not even limited to Ukraine. It's, it's, uh, you envision the scope of it to be in places where democracy is under threat from an authoritarian regime, or is there some other unifying principle behind what the foreign policy or conflict zones that the counteroffensive does and
1: doesn't cover are? Yeah, I think you put your finger on it. I, you know, I mean, I think the goal is to tell stories of people in places where their liberties are being threatened by autocratic impulses or autocratic governments, because, you know, firstly, I think personal storytelling is the basis of, you know, all narrative. And, and that's what makes us want to complete a story. Yeah, I want to, I want to write things and I want our publication to write things and our writers to write things that, um, that I'd want to read. And, uh, oftentimes that's sitting down with a magazine and writing, reading a longer, longer form narrative about, about a really interesting event. Um, we don't really have that, we don't really have that luxury. We, we, uh, use a similar format in an email newsletter on Substack. Um, we don't have a magazine, but it's a similar idea. So what does it take? You know, in
0: terms of the number of subscribers, uh, particularly paid subscribers, to be able to have the kind of news operation that you want to have. You obviously have to pay for your own life. You've talked about a team that you've hired or want to hire, and you're talking about expanding in areas of the world that are not necessarily as inexpensive to operate in as Ukraine. For example, Taiwan is, you know, not the cheapest place in the world. So what what does a what does the revenue model look like in which you could actually afford to do this?
1: Yeah, I mean I think that SubSec is a really interesting model, right? When I first started looking at it, I was a little skeptical of it. But it, it's actually really compelling as a as a way to do journalism because it doesn't rely on the ups and downs of the advertising market. It's not um, you know it, it doesn't it doesn't include a nonprofit kind of charitable model where you're always going back to to donors. Uh, it involves subscribers signing up on either an annual or monthly basis at eight dollars a month or eighty dollars a year. And kind of giving them a little extra, uh, giving them the, the the right to see certain posts that uh, others might not be able to see, or the, the ability to engage in a chat with me and Ross and other members of our team about what's happening in the Donbass region in the east as we're traveling out there in a car. It's hard for me to say how many subscribers exactly, right? Because as you know, um, being a leader in an organization, as you... Make more money uh, demands suddenly appear out of nowhere. things fly out of the sky and they drop before you and and eat up uh, eat up the the money you've you've uh, raised or you've managed to get from from your business i i I think the simple answer is more subscribers than I have today Ben <laughs> um,
0: so it's fa- it's fair to say the growth of the organization is meaningfully contingent on how many people subscribe, right? It's, it's, it's not like, you know, when you, when you start a a big media company, you get investment capital, you get, you know, you, you get some initial budget for your first couple of years and then you got to kind of earn it out here. You're growing on the basis
1: of sales, right? Essentially. I mean, and, Basically, that's how we were one month in and what my pitch to people and to to ask them to be paid subscribers is uh, is this is what pays for our body armor. This is what pays for our medical supplies. This is what pays for our gas to go report. There is a direct connection in a meaningful and personal way between paid subscribers uh, coming and supporting our work and what we eventually put out on the page every week. You know, in a way that is impersonal and wouldn't exist with a major, huge uh, multinational news organization, for example, right? But, like, my, you know, in keeping of the theme of empathy, in keeping of the theme of personal journalism, I want to be, you know, I, I want to be accessible to our readers. I want our readers to get to know Ross and our uh, other reporters as, as they join the team. I, I want this to be like a lively conversation uh between readers and writers uh in a way that wouldn't be possible if we had a huge organization or if I was still working at NPR I mean the concept for this all was that this is going to be my open reporter's notebook right that there's a ton of stuff that I'd never put it in stories when I was working at an NPR because it just didn't fit the format I can tell you how I feel I can tell you what I ate today um I can tell you what the you know the culinary habits are in Kiev and what kind of music I'm hearing or listening to. I mean, it, 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 it has the potential to be a really intimate experience.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: A lot can happen in three
0: years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. My data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. The people who've never kind of spent a lot of time with uh, overseas reporters do not, I think, get a sense of how little of their reporting actually makes it into the paper. That there's a, that the, the experiential quality of particularly you know war zone reporting and uh, that sort of thing but but even any kind of immersive overseas experience reporting on a major story and engaging people on that basis the percentage of it that fits the specific news need of the organization at any given time is is got to be up there with the percentage of the Louvre's collection that's on display at any given time. You know, it's some some vanishingly small percent. And I do think one of the amazing things about the Substack form is that it's basically just open to anything that connects the writer and his or her or their readerships. And, you know, if you can frame it in a way that's compelling to people, that's kosher. And so you had a piece the other day, and I don't have it open in front of me, on International Vishivanka Day, which Vishivanka are the Ukrainian embroidered uh, shirts. And these have become a kind of, uh, I guess, kind of nationalist show of resistance globally and so Ukrainians on Vishivanka Day wear Vishivanka. And you know, there are a lot of stories about it every year. You know, there's a Reuters, everybody's wearing their Vishivankas today, and there's a lot of people post social media with them. But I did notice that you were the only site that I saw that had a kind of a, a kind of explanation of the sort of cultural role that the embroidery and in the specific context of this war is playing in people's kind of emotional pride in in how ukraine is performing kind of resistance to uh there's a there's definitely a cultural anti-imperialism to it uh and there's a kind of quality of you know russians often dismiss ukrainians as as a peasant nation, right? And the Vishivanka is kind of a peasant shirt, right? Or a peasant dress. And so there's a kind of a, yeah, and fuck you quality to it with reference to a lot of Russian prejudices against Ukrainians. And so I was, I, I do think that's the kind of thing that probably you don't get to do on NPR.
1: Yeah. I mean, so like I said, in keeping with the theme of the way we do news, is I don't, you know, I don't do the lead. You know, if Thursday was Vyshevanka Day, a day that, uh, you know, that Ukrainians wear their traditional folk shirts. Um, we tried to, to write it from the perspective of a particular person, this woman named Maria Zarenska, and she's 84 years old. She spent the last 70 years making Vyshevanka and also teaching children and other Ukrainians about the history and cultural importance of Vyshevanka. And we kind of see Vishnevanka Day through her eyes, and what it means, you know, the places she's brought her traveling Vishnevanka ex- exhibition to, and and then you know what it looks like in Kiev. We just walked around and just took, started taking photos of everyone, every cool Vishavanka that we could see, and then on top of it, just to, just to kind of accent your point about how there are just things in the notebook, you know, I was like, there there are a couple of things that are themes of mine. I mean, I really like hot sauce and there's no there's almost no sriracha in this entire country there are millions of people there's no there's no hot sauce in this country so i I like to take readers on a journey to try to find hot sauce from time to time i'm obsessed with vietnamese noodle soup so i'm always trying to find it it's hard to find like kind of home-cooked pho in (laughs) in kiev if you can believe it or not during this war but i'm working on it and then, you know, today I, I was walking through the Maidan, that, that famous independent square in the middle of Kiev, where, you know, revolutions have, have happened, demonstrations frequently occur. It's a symbol of, you know, the Ukrainian nation in many ways. And I looked over and I saw that someone was selling bubble tea. There. <laughs> and I thought, well, that, that you know, that, I didn't, I didn't expect to see that at all. Uh, and I, and I posted about it, but, you know, having a Substack lets me talk about the the on-the-ground, you know, ground-level view of what's actually happening in this war in a less formal way. And I think people really, really like that.
0: So I'm curious, you've talked about the stuff that you can do that you couldn't do at NPR and that a more conventional news organization isn't in a position to do. There's a flip side of that, which is the stuff that they have to do that all of a sudden you don't have to do. So what are some of the stories that will never appear on the counteroffensive?
1: You know, as I was kind of thinking about the the last few minutes of our conversation, and what I'm realizing is that there's a there's a, a distinction between news and reporting, right? that if you work for a major news organization, you're going to be chasing. What Zelensky said today at the press conference, or what members of Congress on Capitol Hill said after votes—you're chasing the news. You're 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 trying to tell people what happened today, and that's important stuff. Um, but reporting encompasses more than that, and it can tell all sorts of stories that aren't pegged to this happened today. Um, and so, what I'm trying to do with the counteroffensive over on Substack is to move beyond. Just that more traditional, this happened today kind of reporting. As far as you know, the the sort of stories that won't appear on the counteroffensive, I think what's true is, as a much smaller organization, we're not able to take as many risks, right? Um, I'm not going to be doing frontline reporting right in the trenches. We have a rule which, which I won't get into too much detail about, but we we I've set a rule for for me and my staff about a certain distance. Uh, that, that were permitted to go, you know, from the front lines in order to reduce risk. We just don't, we, we, it's just not worth it for us. You know, there are, there are huge news organizations that if someone got hurt or someone got in trouble, could spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to pull their people out of uh, harm's way. Me, on the other hand, I'm still asking subscribers to switch to paid so that we can pay our rent. So we can't take those kinds of risks. We will go cover the war, but in a much uh, more risk-averse way, I think, than than I would if I was still working for NPR.
0: All right. So this is a conversation I could have asked you while you were still at NPR, but it seems more acute now, which is, to what extent do you consider yourself a partisan in this war? As in... You've said very clearly in this conversation that, you know, certain types of authoritarianism are simply incompatible with, you know, a, a, a thinking decent person's concept of of society and decency. And yet, when you say that, you put yourself, it's very hard to then say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a neutral reporter in the context of this war because one side represents the free people who are just minding their own business and getting bombed and murdered. And the other side represents the authoritarian impulse that you've just described. And when you say, and then we want to expand to Taiwan, you're kind of replicating that. And so I guess I'm, I'm interested. What does, the counteroffensive, how do you describe the balance of fairness, both sidesism, even-handedness with respect to reporting a war? You're based in Kiev, not in Moscow. You're spending time with Ukrainian warfighters and and civilians and, and civil society members, not with Russians. So are are you on the Ukrainian side of this conflict, as I would proudly say that I am, or are you something else?
1: You know, Ben, I've spent the last 15 years of my professional career trying to avoid questions like this. You know, working at big publications like...
0: Well, those days are over, Tim. <laughs> now now,
1: now you've got to take a side. It's like, it's like, let me check with the editor-in-chief of my publication about what we should say. Well, he says... Um, you know, like, so... like. There's no way for me to say what I said earlier in the conversation and then turn around and say there's some sort of moral equivalence between Ukraine and Russia. There just isn't. When we talk about autocracy, I think it's pretty clear which side in this conflict is the autocratic one and which side is a growing and fledgling democracy that wants to become more progressive, more liberal, more free, less corrupt tied closer with the European Union, tied closer to Americans. Um, So there's no way for me to answer this question honestly without, without, you know, it being very quite uh, obvious where I stand on that. That said, there's a difference between that view and fairness, right? Fairness means being skeptical, even of those people you agree with. Fairness means uh, giving people, who are subjects of your story an opportunity to comment before publishing the story? Uh, fairness has all sorts of other components to it, uh, other than uh, other than you can't take sides. Um, and so, I guess that would be my answer to this question. I think you know uh, you know we we don't we don't have moral ambiguity about, for example, theft, right? We don't both sides theft or murder. I just cannot bring myself to say that there are two equal uh, equally valid uh, sides in this conflict, and uh, so that's that's where i stand it's pretty o- it's pretty obvious as you said uh, based on where I live and and who I talk to, but I'm still very much um interested in being fair if that makes sense if that distinction makes sense. I would also very much like to report from Moscow, but um, as you know. Uh, it's been very, it's a very hostile place for journalists, um, especially recently. Right. So
0: I'm interested in your, in the particular statement that you made that you still have an obligation to be skeptical. One of the things that I get accused of a lot is being insufficiently skeptical of the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian narrative. And I actually accept that criticism in the sense that I would rather err on the side of credulity and the cost of it be some wasted money, weapon systems that end up in the wrong hands or that sort of thing, than be... So skeptical that aid doesn't end up where it needs to be in time to say save people's lives. So I would, I would err on the side of insufficient skepticism. And that said, the, you know, the Ukrainian government's performance over the last 30 years actually warrants some skepticism. And so I'm curious for your thoughts on uh, the, the, the parts of the Ukrainian narrative that from an American point of view, and from an American journalism point of view, warrant the most skepticism
1: you know I, I think it's really interesting uh, this is a really interesting topic, right? because there's a really time honored tradition in Ukraine of Ukrainians being incredibly skeptical of their own governments and each other you know and and so Americans kind of look at um at ukraine as a as a relatively foreign place. Um, but Ukrainians are the, you know, the, the, the most boisterous, uh, or well, not the most boisterous, but they're quite boisterous people when it comes to politics and disagreement and, and, um, and criticizing their own government and criticizing, uh, senior leaders of important agencies. It's a, it's a time-honored tradition and it's, it's one of the reasons why Ukraine, uh, looks with great disdain towards Russia and, what many Ukrainians view to be a, a, entirely too unskeptical population, unwilling to demonstrate or uh, or go out on the street to, to push back against uh, the leaders that they privately complain about. In terms of narratives, I, I, I'm trying to think of things that Americans generally believe that aren't actually happening in Ukraine right now. I I did think of one, which is, which is that Zelensky for one is, is lionized in, in the U S and there's, there's good reason for why so many folks are admirers of Zelensky. But the funny thing is that in Ukraine, as you may know, before the war began, he had rock bottom approval ratings. And I was talking to this guy and, and and he was, he was, he's very kind of typical of the um, Ukrainian political mind which you know, we met in uh, kind of central, central East city in, in Ukraine. Um, and he's a he's a, traditionally been a Russian speaking Ukrainian. And he said, you know, I didn't vote for Zelensky uh, in the last election, but I've been just overwhelmed with pride and joy about how, how incredibly he's performed as the president of our country uh, and how, how, how much, uh, courage he's shown uh, in in pushing back in these early days in the invasion and even until now and then he pauses a beat and he says and i wouldn't vote for him next time um well th-
0: that's fabulous though
1: right <laughs> that's like the- of democratic dissent, right? But like that's like that's you know it's, it's it reminds you of you know Churchill not winning re-election after the war, the second world war. It reminds you of what a free people is allowed to do and think.
0: Right, or George George W Bush having 90% approval ratings after 9/11 and then in 2004 beating John Kerry but only by a little bit. Yeah, I mean I think that
1: you know, uh you know, that this this that there may be a conventional wisdom that that Zelensky is 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 you know it, an example of a perfect leader for example, you know, let's say. Um but he's a human like everyone else and in Ukraine he's certainly treated like a politician like any other.
0: So, let me ask you about a couple of other themes that are I think, really important in the American debate about Ukraine. Uh, One of them is corruption, and specifically corruption as pertains to the very large amount of uh, aid that has gone to the Ukrainian military and for budget support. Should we look at that and buy the Ukrainian narrative that it is all being accounted for very rigorously and that there is no problem, uh, and whatever corruption problems Ukraine has had, which the government does not deny by any means, there is a sort of national compact that the aid is not, you know, particularly military aid is is not to be trifled with that way. Or should we look at it and say? Yeah, that's, of course, what they have to say. And there will be an X percent bleed uh, from whatever is given because that's the way corruption works in a society that has endemic corruption, much the way we all assumed that aid to the government of Afghanistan, some significant portion of it's going to disappear. How skeptical should we be of the Ukrainian narrative of this?
1: Well, I think the the Ukrainian government narrative includes an acknowledgement that they do have some issues to clean up. But talk to any, talk to almost any Ukrainian and, and they'll be able to share with you uh, some sort of story involving corruption. The thing is, though, there's complaints about corruption and then there's winning the war. I've, I've spent some time trying to report on corruption in Ukraine and um, you'll call up someone who may have spent – 15 or 20 of their uh, 20 years working on the corruption issue, fighting the corruption, making it their life's work. And they'll pick up the phone and they'll say, I can't talk about that. Um, I can't talk about corruption right now. Winning the war is too important. Um, so I'm not going to address it until, until victory, which is, you know, a phrase that Ukrainians often say that even people who have spent, who, who've made it their life's work to fight this for this issue are, reluctant to engage in it because it may detract from what is really the the unifying force in society right now, which is fighting off this Russian invasion and winning the war.
0: And is that self-imposed, or is there some sense that it is, you know, that this is disloyal to elevate other issues to the front of the conversation now? How much of this is a just people are very united on this, and how much of it is, is uh, social pressure or even government pressure?
1: I don't think there's any government pressure prohibiting people from discussing this sort of thing, at least from what I've seen. Uh, I think a lot of people are really sh- – I mean, this war is extremely personal for a lot of people. Many, many, many Ukrainians, I want to say most, but I don't have the statistics to back it, know someone who has gone off to war and has not come back. Uh, it, it is really, really personal. And when you talk to folks, you get the sense that there are two reasons that the war is being fought. The first is the obvious one Russia invaded, and, and Ukrainians want to defend their physical territory. But the second, reason the war is being fought in the in the eyes of a lot of folks is that uh, they're fighting for a freer ukraine that's less corrupt than it was before and you're going to find a lot of disillusioned and angry people especially young people if the war ends and corruption isn't addressed in a progressive and when i say progressive i mean a, a gradual and ongoing manner manner that 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 seeks to eliminate it entirely from ukrainian society there are so many people who 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 will be asking are already asking what is this war being fought for if we're just going to return to the same old habits from before that this war needs to mean something in a greater sense than just beating off the russian invasion that it needs to lead it needs to lead to a freer and less corrupt ukraine
0: so it would be uh Irresponsible and reckless of me to close without asking you for your thoughts on the coming counteroffensive, particularly because you've named your publication after it. Uh, When is it going to start? And what precisely which forces are going to move where? And what exact military maneuvers should we expect?
1: I think the click that you just heard on the line was the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, joining our call. Um, but well, they are very welcome, of course
0: now I, I in all seriousness, um since the specific formulation of the question that I posed was both stupid and joking uh let let me frame it a little bit differently. uh there's been a lot of hype about this there's some of it is definitely has the air of a long running Ukrainian psyop against the Russians. Uh, but it's raised the question in everybody's mind: what uh, What do we expect and when? Which is, of course, the point. But since that question is on everybody's mind, what do we expect and when?
1: You know, I'm I'm a former U.S. Army soldier. I'm a, I used to, I was a combat medic, and uh, one thing that I that I know for sure is that nothing quite saps the confidence of even the most confident person then waiting and not getting enough sleep in tandem. Uh, Zelensky has said that it's going to be some time until a counteroffensive begins. But I think there's already an understanding among Ukrainian officials that uh, they've raised expectations a little too high. And that has impact not only on the military perspective, but on the psychological perspective of Ukraine's old soldiers. That to put so much hype around a particular campaign and its success, it's it's a greater hill to climb than go down this road 400 meters and capture that uh, intersection. Right. I, I don't know when the counteroffensive is going to start. It could be some time. But what I can tell you is that soldiers on the front, from what I Can tell, and from my reporting and conversations, are just absolutely exhausted. They're absolutely obliterated. That uh, it's going to be a very challenging period of time uh, for soldiers fighting in uh, on on all fronts. Once the counteroffensive begins, it's just going to be brutal, brutal warfare.
0: Well, until the counteroffensive starts on the ground, you can read the counteroffensive on Substack and needless to say, or maybe needful to say, you should uh, subscribe to it, become a paid subscriber. Tim Mac, uh, please do join us again. And uh, thanks very much for joining us this evening.
1: Ben, thanks so much for having me on. I am a huge Lawfare fan, so thank you.
0: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, Our audio engineer this episode is Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. You are our publicity department, so tweet about The Lawfare Podcast. Share The Lawfare Podcast on Facebook. Subscribe to The Lawfare Podcast's various social media feeds Make TikTok videos about the Lawfare podcast and for heaven's sake, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare and leave a rating or review wherever you found us. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.